It's good to be back uh, in this spot. It's been a while since I've gotten to preach uh, here, and so um, I welcome this as a privilege uh, to open God's Word uh, together with you. And as we always do, um, let's start our time together in prayer, asking for God's help uh, along the way. Let's pray. God, we need to believe that's true. Um, The masses need to believe that it's true that you are God. Um, I pray that you would uh, teach us this morning that we would believe that, uh, that that you would work that into our hearts this morning uh, through your word in uh, in Daniel. And God, I pray where I speak my own words, would they fall away? But where I speak your words after you, God, uh, that would you would you convict and teach uh, and equip and encourage and comfort, whatever it is that you need to do this morning, I pray that your spirit would be at work to do that in our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we, we continue in uh, our series entitled Life Without Control. Uh, Daniel 2 is our text this morning, so if you want to turn there, uh, you may. I'm, I'm going to be telling the story, so follow along as we go. But our story this morning starts with a dream. One of those dreams where you wake up uh, sweaty and nervous and anxious, right? You, there, there's this moment where you wonder, you, you know, you can't quite remember it, uh, but you just remember enough that it was terrifying, right? I, God in his providence, he gave me one of those dreams last night. Uh, I don't know um, if he knew that I needed something, uh, an illustration or something uh, to share this morning, but uh, I was back on, in my dream, I was back on vacation. We were on vacation a couple weeks ago at the beach, and Beth and I and our 17-month-old Evie were at the beach, we're playing in the sand and the water was great, uh, and I, in the dream, decided I was going to go back inside, so I did, and Beth decided she was going to go back inside, so she did, uh, and, but neither one of us had our daughter with us, which was a terrifying moment in the dream where we go back out, we run, we search frantically. I remember kind of searching in the water, like that's helpful. Uh, Running up and down the beach. Uh, It's weird what you remember in a dream, but that's what it was. We we were looking frantically and she was nowhere to be found. And so I woke up, I mean like sat up, because I thought it was still, I was still like in Emerald Isle, North Carolina, and then realized, no, I'm in the middle of Kansas. Like, there's no, I'm a long ways away from the ocean. I probably don't need to go check in Evie's room to make sure she's there. But I felt like that, right? We've all had those dreams, whether they were as vivid as, as day or fuzzy, right, distant. You can't quite remember what it was, but maybe, but you do know it was terrible. And that's where we are in our story, right at the beginning of Daniel chapter 2. The most powerful man on the planet King Nebuchadnezzar uh, has had a terrible dream, and he knows he needs to know what it means, because back then, uh, dreams were given a lot of significance. I mean, we like to sort of act like, uh, it, you know, we, we retell it, and we, we, we kind of pretend there's a lot of significance, and maybe there's something going on there, right? Maybe there's something about me fearing Evie being gone or something, but, but back then, they were thought to be glimpses into the future, which I really hope is not true uh, for my dream. Back then, especially if a king, if a king of a powerful empire, a king of a kingdom had a dream like that, he needed to know what it meant. The nation needed to know what it meant. And that's what we're talking about this morning, a dream with national implications. Indeed, a dream with historic implications. So King Neb, he calls together a meeting of the minds, um, his crack staff, his dream team, if you will, 
Yes, good, thank you. Right to see if Tim were back there. Anyway, uh, thank you for getting that, I appreciate that. Uh, his, he calls together the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, these are their titles uh, in the story. And as modern readers, we might see that list and think, uh, you know, smoking cauldrons or wands or spells or something, you know, like Gandalf and Dumbledore are in the meeting themselves. Right? We might think of that, but, but really this is a legit group of people in the ancient world. These are the best and the brightest in the most, in the most prominent positions in the most powerful government of the day. These are Ivy Leaguers with impressive resumes and significant influence in their jobs. And so King Neb, he gets them together to help with his, his dream problem. He needs to know what it means. And these are the people to do it. And they're happy to. Look at verse, uh, verse 4. They say, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. Right? Tell us. Give us the details, and we'll tell you what it means. But that's not how King Neb sees this going down. He wants more from them. They're not just called together to give the interpretation. They, they are asked, they are demanded, commanded to get inside of his head and retell the dream to him. Now, we don't know. Maybe he can't remember the dream. Uh, maybe he's testing them to see if they're, they're the real deal uh, or if they can cut it as, as the dream team. We don't know. The text doesn't say. But we do know that he's made up his mind. He's firm. And, and the stakes could not be higher for his staff. Look at verse 5. It says, the word, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. Uh, and, you, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Now, that really escalated quickly, right? I mean, talk about a really bad staff meeting. <laughs> I've been assigned some really hard projects before, but this, this takes the cake, right? His request is impossible. They can't do it. They couldn't do it if their lives depended on it. And indeed, their lives depend on, on carrying out this task. But their negotiations, as they negotiate with the king, back and forth, we see it in the story, it's just futile. He is firm on this point. King Neb won't budge. He's a very bad, bad man with lots and lots of power. In fact, all the earthly power that you can imagine. He's not the most powerful person in our story. But we'll get there in a minute. Look at verse 10. This is their final plea. It says, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. That's bold. The thing that the king asks is difficult. It's underselling it. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And of course, I mean, they're right. No man, the best and brightest, can't do this. They can't get into his head and tell his dream. You'd have to be divine to reveal that kind of knowledge. But that doesn't stop King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, verse 12 says he was angry and very furious. And so now the sentence, this death sentence for not carrying out this request, it's not just for his staff team now. 
it extends beyond them to all the wise men in Babylon, which is where Daniel and his friends enter our story. Remember Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they are, their, their names are given now? They are Hebrew teenagers who were taken from their home, not because of anything they had done, but because God had given his people over into Babylon as judgment for the rebellion against him. And at the end of chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are described as having 10 times the knowledge and the skills of the king's best men. And so even as exiles now in a foreign land, they've been in a training program uh, of sorts, and now they are, they are now wise men of Babylon. This is their thing, interpreting dreams. This is part of their, their training. They do this. Uh, which means now they are on the execution list. They are, it says right there, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, uh, and Mishael. They are on the list. They, they are about to be killed in the wake of King Nebuchadnezzar's rage. So Daniel, he confronts the head of the king's army, Arioch. He goes, uh, and Arioch probably has come to him ready to kill him. And Daniel says, whoa, 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 wait a second. Why are you here to kill us? What is going on? I love it. The text says, with wisdom and prudence, with tact, Daniel confronts this general. And so when he hears the awful news uh, that this dream needs to be told and interpreted or else everyone dies, everyone's limbs get separated, uh, what does Daniel do? How does he respond? Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to like my uh, arms and legs. Um, I like my limbs. If it were me, I would have been running as far away from the ripping off of my limbs as possible. But not Daniel. Daniel here, he has a, li a little bit more faith, a bit more confidence. Um, and he runs right towards the problem. He steps up. Uh, and it's a gutsy move of sorts. Also, uh, you know, what does he have to lose? He's going to, you can't, your arms and legs can't be ripped off twice. Uh, so, so he has nothing to lose in some ways. But, but he goes to King Nebuchadnezzar. He requests to be before the king to ask for an appointment to interpret this dream. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, fine, you have one day. So Daniel goes and he assembles his team, these companions, uh, his friends. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, I love this. He gets the appointment with the king. He goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and says, look, I'll do it. I'll tell you the dream. I'll interpret it for you. And then he goes off to his friends and says, we need to pray. We need, we need to pray because I've told the king I'm going to do this. Right? And I mean, how's that for like some super spiritual motivation for prayer? Right? Uh, I like my limbs. I, would, I, would not, like, I, would, I don't want to die. Right? That's, nothing motivates prayer like death. And the text, it's, it's almost matter-of-fact, God does it. In a dream in the middle of the night, Daniel and his friends ask for mercy. They ask for God to step in, and he does. He shows up. And I love that the focus of the text is not in how God does it, but in, God, in Daniel's response to him. Listen to this prayer of Daniel, starting in verse 20. It says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. It's a beautiful hymn of gratitude and praise. And you see that throughout wisdom and and power, wisdom and might. Daniel knows what God is capable of. He knows who this God is that he's praying to. And so now with the dream secured, with the dream and its interpretation, Daniel goes uh, to, he goes to Arioch to keep him from killing anyone, Right? And he says, it's time to hold my calendar date with the king. Now, Arioch, they go, they go before the king. Arioch, uh, he, is the, he is the commander, uh, and he is quick to capitalize on Daniel's faith. He says, look what I found. Look, I found this guy who can do this, right? He, he takes the credit for himself because he knows that this king, he likes winners. Um, and Daniel, by contrast, he gives glory where it's due. He points to God. He points away from himself. You know, the king asked for, a dream, for the dream and its response, but here's how Daniel starts, verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers, no, none of them, none of the best and the brightest can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel agrees with the king's men, right? No one can do this. The best and the brightest will fall short. But, Daniel says, there is a God in heaven, and he is able. And he's chosen to reveal mysteries about the future, about what's going to happen in the latter days to a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, for reasons I don't know. But Daniel, he turns the spotlight away from himself and even away from King Nebuchadnezzar, and he shines it right on God and his power and his wisdom. And his ability to alone match such an impossible request. And then he gets right to it. He gets to the dream. And here's what King Neb desperately wants to know. So there's a huge statue that he sees, this this statue that is terrible and bright and would make your knees shake if you stood in front of it. And at the very top is a head of gold, a head of pure gold, supported by arms and a chest of silver and a torso and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and feet made of iron and clay. And, and as the king stands there, before he could even take it all in, see what this great and mighty statue is all about, he sees in the corner of his eye this stone coming towards it. Slowly but surely, it's a small stone, but it's coming quickly nonetheless. And it's going right for the feet, the feet of the iron and the clay, and it smashes into the feet and obliterates them into a thousand, into a million pieces. And not just the feet, but then the rest of the structure tumbles down and breaks into pieces such that the wind, as it, as it blows, it carries it away like the statue never existed. And this stone, which wasn't any ordinary stone, it remained in place of this statue And it was small at first, but then it grew, and it grew, and it grew to the point where it filled the whole earth. Where a a mighty statue once 
stood tall and glorious. Now there's a mountain which stretches as tall as the eye can see and as far as one could go. That was the dream. It's a simple, a statue and a stone. A powerful picture of what would come. And now Daniel gets to the interpretation. And listen to how he starts in verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you, O king, the glorious one, you are the head of gold. That is quite the introduction. This powerful king, King Nebuchadnezzar, as we've covered already. He's the most powerful man on the planet. He is the head of gold. His kingdom Babylon is at the top. His earthly earthly rule stretches over all of the known world. He has has God-given, all-encompassing power. You can imagine the smirk or the smile on King Neb's face as Daniel confirms his greatness, tells him everything he already knows. But there's more. There's more to the dream, right? There's not just a head of gold. There are arms and chests of silver. There's a torso and legs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, right? There will be life after Babylon. There are other kingdoms that will come, and you can see the smile slowly fade when Daniel says, you won't last. Neither will your kingdom. After you will come another, and then another, and then another, and still another. And historically, we know that's what happens. After the Babylonians came the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans with their endless Caesars, conquering and reconquering, conquering and reconquering, right? Just pick up any history book, and you see that empires rise and they fall. Kingdoms come to power. And then, they, then they're shattered and blown away like dust. Every nation dies. None of them last, right? Rulers, they come and they go. And Daniel says, but during that time, these kingdoms, all their power, all their wickedness, all their glory, they will be turned to dust. And just like an afternoon breeze blows, blows away the dust, they will be tossed away. But that's not the, that's not the whole story, right? There's, there, is one, there is one kingdom that is, that is not like the others. Verse 44 says, In the last days of those kings, the God of heaven, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. All the other kingdoms of the world are like dust that will be blown away, like they never existed at all, but God's kingdom is the mountain that fills the whole earth. And Daniel says, you saw the stone, O king, the small stone that came and turned this statue into rubble. That mountain, it will never end, and that kingdom will endure. Do you see it, friends? This is, this is a, that's the story. It's a simple story. It's kind of a weird story about a dream and a statue And yet, do you see it as as Daniel saw it? 
Because we, we need this story as a people in exile. People without a home. We who have put our trust in other things, even in other kingdoms, in other, in, in other nations. And this prophecy is 2,600 years old and a little bizarre, right? But this week, it has been fresher than, than the news, than yesterday's news. I don't, know if you, I don't know if you feel that. The relevance of this story for today and the, and, the, and the central message, some may not like it. Uh, it may sound kind of doomsday or like I just want to kind of pack it up and give up on the world, uh, which isn't true totally. But still, this, this vision is, has been life-giving for me. Here's the message of the dream. Only one nation lasts forever. Only one nation lasts forever. And it's not yours, King Nebuchadnezzar. It's not yours, Alexander the Great, or Caesar. It's not yours, Stalin, or Hitler, or North Korea, or ISIS, or China, or Clinton, or Trump, right? Only one nation lasts forever, and it's not the United States of America. Now, listen, I love, I love my country. I, lo- this is, I love this temporary home where there are people that I, that I care for, and freedoms that I enjoy, and, and endless things to be thankful for. But even, even America will turn to dust, which feels like treason to say, honestly. And it scares me to say that because, like I said, this is my home. I love this place. But friends, we're not living in the country that we were made for. This is not, this is not the home for which we were made. We've never lived in the country we were, we were made for, right? It's not the good old days that we miss, whatever that means. Or some idealistic future that we can achieve if we, just, if we just elect the right person. Our home was never meant to be here. What we long for is a different country altogether because only one nation lasts forever. Our hope, our confidence is, is that stone that mountain, that kingdom that is indestructible and infallible, that will endure forever and is ever victorious. It belongs only to God, and yet it's available to all. We talked about it quite a bit in our Matthew series, right? We've talked about the kingdom of God and what it's like and who we ought to be as citizens of that kingdom. And we're going to pick that back up when we return to Matthew at the beginning of the year. But just imagine, just imagine what this meant to Daniel and his friends in the middle of exile. Imagine his words spread among his people, because remember, that's who the dream is for. God's people, even though it's revealed to a pagan king, God in his control can do that. But just imagine the hope, the confidence, and the hope and confidence it can instill in us, right? Even 2,600 years later, while, our, while kingdoms have risen and fallen, and they look very, today looks very different, right? Times have changed, yet aren't we in, in many ways like Daniel and his friends and God's people in exile waiting, waiting to go home to the place that we were made for? So how do we wait well? How do we do that? That's, that's how we're going to kind of close up, just three observations as we end. How do we wait well? First, 
We should long for our homeland. Long for your homeland. It's a, desire, it's a call to desire the right things. Because if we really believe that only one nation lasts forever and it's not America or it's not other earthly kingdoms, then our lives should be characterized by longing, not settling. We shouldn't settle in here. And I don't say that as someone who does this perfectly. This is where the text hit me square in the face this week. I mean, I am seduced by this home at every turn because I fit. America works well for me, you know. I'm a a wealthy white guy in Johnson County, America. And it's easy for me, on the one hand, to blend in and act like this is the best. This This is good. But when I let myself face the atrocities of this world and mourn with others over the brokenness that is in and through and around all of us, I... I tend to long for another home. I long for another place. And I love the author of Hebrews uh, as he describes God's people through the centuries who lived in this way. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. It'll be on the screen. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged, which is in many ways what I'm, what I'm saying is the first step here this morning. Acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, and He, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, we ought to be living here as homesick foreigners. As people who know acutely, who feel it, that this is not our home. And we're not... We're not called to belong or to blend in, not totally. I mean, we talked about that last week, to be yes, no, but yes people, right? We ought to be engaged in the world around us, and we'll get there in a minute. But, we, but our identity, our loyalties, our deepest allegiances ought not to be wrapped up here. They should be wrapped up in the country that we're waiting for, the place for which we've been made. So the question for me and for you, for us this morning is, have we, have we gotten a little too comfortable in Babylon? Because many of us, most of us, I would even say, have carved out a pretty good life here. <laughs> have we settled as if this is as good as it gets? Or do we long for home, believing that the best is still out there and indeed is breaking in all around us? We look for it, where God's kingdom has come. Second, we work for the common good. Because this doesn't get, off, get us off the hook. Just longing for a homeland doesn't mean we go stick our heads in the sand and just wait for Jesus to return, right? We're waiting for more, but in the meantime, we work for the common good. We should be characterized by work, not withdrawal. Even as we are exiles in a foreign land, we work for the common good of those around us. Daniel and his friends do that. And Tim talked about it last week. There were some in, in the people of God who set up camp outside the city to stay away from the evils of Babylon. But listen to Jeremiah 29. Tim read it last week. Uh, it's, it's so good. I'm going to read it again. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. This is a text that Daniel probably was influenced by. And if you look at the timing of it, Daniel probably knew this text. Listen 
says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. That's pretty extreme generational language. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I mean, just like Daniel and his companions, we need this reminder. Because of their work, people flourished. Not only God's people, but Babylonians flourished. It was in, in, their, in the, the welfare of Babylon that Daniel and God's people thrived. And Daniel's voice and influence, it, it grew because he did his work well and because God gave him favor in it. Now, at the end, I mean, you see the end of the chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar praising God because of this, because Daniel and his companions are working for the good of those around them. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not a converted Christian, right? We'll see that. Stay tuned for chapter 3. But he is a powerful man who is starting to recognize God's power, God's worth, his wisdom. Daniel and his friends were good at, his, at their jobs, and it gave them a voice to speak, to speak truth and hope to those around them. Third, and lastly, take the long view of history. If this is true, if all this is true, if only one nation lasts forever, we have to take the long view of history, God's view of history, which is much, much bigger than my 70 or 80 years. And really, after reflecting on this this week, this this statue, this, this story is oddly encouraging. I mean, just think about the, God, the way that God uh, characterizes, he pictures thousands of years of history of the, of the most powerful global empires in the world, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. They are all a statue who are knocked over by a bowling ball. At, essentially, a, stone, a small stone crashes into the statue and it's dust. It's gone. Like it never existed. And when it's all said and done, all the glory and the might and the power of the empires of this world will be like dust in the wind. And look, America is less than 250 years old, right? We are a little more than a blip on the radar screen of history. And that's not necessarily the encouraging part that I was talking about. But it's not as terrifying or as insulting to some, to me as it is to some. The encouraging part is that God is the one who removes kings and sets up kings. He is in control of who's in control. That's been true for history past. It will continue to be true long after I'm dead. And it's true right now. He is in control of who's in control. Is that that not fresh for right now? We need to believe that's true. That's a good start to taking the long view of history. And look, don't overestimate the power that we have over the next month in November or the power of the right or the left or the media or whoever you want to blame for what's going on right now, right? Exercise your right to vote. It's a great privilege. It is true. But listen, God is the one who is directing history. Be informed, get involved, but God removes presidents. He sets them up. 
He decides who rules. And if he can use King Nebuchadnezzar, God help us, it's going to be okay. Notice how many times Daniel uses the phrase God of heaven, God of heaven, God of heaven. Go back through and read this week and underline it. It's everywhere because it's a key theme in this chapter. It's not the gods of the earth who hold the power. Not the idols of our age. It's the God of heaven. Only he can do this. He is the one who is moving history forward. He's the one who's, who is moving our lives forward. And what's Daniel's response to all of this? He prays. And prayer always takes the long view. right? As, as people in exile waiting for this country that we call our home, we should be characterized by prayer, not by panic. And look, I don't do this well, which is why I'm saying it right now. We need to be a people who pray, because otherwise we betray the fact that we, we actually think that we're in control, or we think this place is good enough to call home. We pray to a God who cares about kingdoms and car trouble who cares about nations and the new job that you're walking into tomorrow, who cares about history and what you're going to do this afternoon. Go to him in prayer because he is on the throne and he is in control. He cares about his people and he has the power to save. Only one nation lasts forever and it's, it's not here. But we work. We work for the good of this place. And we pray as those who have a God who is in control of who's in control. Let's pray. God, thank you that all of that is true. Um, I wouldn't want to live in any, any other story. Thank you for the hope that we have in a, in a kingdom that is breaking in even now. Where all, wrong, where all wrongs will be made right. Where death is overcome where you reign in fullness. I pray even this morning that we would engage the people and the circumstances around us in our spheres of influence, in our families, that we would, we would engage as those who really truly believe that you are in control of who's in control. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.